0: Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientists. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I have typically long, kind of informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. Mostly scientists so far, although I've also talked with folks who work in a policy or who study climate policy. And... For this episode, I'm happy to say we're pushing out in another new direction because I'm talking with someone whose specialty is science communication. He's a lecturer of, senior lecturer of science communication, Sam Illingworth, Dr. Sam Illingworth, senior lecturer up at Manchester Metropolitan University. Um, I've met Sam a a few times over the years. I forget where we we first met, but um, somewhere here in the UK where I'm recording this and where I've been working for the past few years. Um, but I wanted to talk to Sam for lots of reasons, one of which is the uh, Climate Communication Project. Uh, Sam was very heavily involved with this project. Uh, this was uh, kind of a, a year-long pilot project. Who uh, One of the objectives of this uh, effort was to kind of collect the uh, UK best practices on engaging with people about climate change on how do kind of scientists and science communicators at the moment how do they engage with people and i'm not really doing it justice just let me read you a summary from the uh, from the website here so uh, the summary you can find this by the way at the org you can find the website you can find a summary of the research that they did you can find um the report the final report's very nice it's a uh, Uh, you know, well formatted, clearly laid out and easy to digest report. And uh, I highly recommend it for anyone who does science communication, climate communication, especially, uh, then that's going to be a a, a good resource for you, hopefully. So, right. The summary, uh, over the last three decades reports by the intergovernmental panel on climate change have made it increasingly clear that wide-scale societal and political changes are required to ensure 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 a suitable uh, sustainable resilient future i can't read today such transformational changes are reliant on a strong platform of public support and highlight the growing role the climate change communication has to play right so this project is to uh, aimed at developing the uh, uk capacity for climate change engagement uh, this and Climate Outreach, uh, this project, the Climate Communication Project and Climate Outreach, that organization have uh, published this report that takes stock of the current climate communication knowledge base and sheds light on how to engage audiences with climate change more effectively. Yeah, so again, project.org look for that, look for the report there. That's most of uh, what Sam and I talk about because we only had a, a limited amount of time To discuss so we we kind of kept it short kind of kept it focused and you you will notice if you're a regular listener you'll see that this episode is much shorter than the other ones Uh, and that was basically just down to the time constraints Uh, it was also a first in that we recorded it remotely and uh, i think it worked out all right so uh, i know you're probably you know you're used to hearing the um, two the the sound of two people actually talking the live sound but we did try this over uh, an internet connection and um well, I think it's all right, really. It sounds like listening to a to a phone call, which isn't so bad. Uh, hopefully you agree. Hopefully it is suitable for you as well. Sam Illingworth, Dr. Illingworth, uh, you can find him on Twitter uh, at just his name. He has his name, at Sam Illingworth. And again, like I mentioned, he's a lecturer, senior lecturer up at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University. Uh, he's also co-director of the Manchester Game Studio. He says he conducts research into games and gaming. Um and uh, how to use that. He, he, uh, he has a very nice description on his Twitter bio. He says that he uses poetry and games to bring people together. Uh, he's also the chief editor of the uh, Geoscience Communication Journal. That's an EGU journal, uh, an open access journal. And the uh, I'm just reading different Twitter things here, you know, that this Geoscience communication journal, it's an open access journal to help share knowledge and give more traditional recognition to science communication in the geosciences yeah also looking at sam's twitter here he has a book coming out um he has a book coming out soon uh he just tweeted uh, a little while ago as i'm recording this that he has some advanced proof copies it's called a sonnet to science scientists and their poetry um so that that looks exciting that looks cool yeah sam uh, makes use of poetry as part of his science communication efforts and uh you can find out more about that on his website look for his book look for his twitter um it was a real pleasure to talk with with sam he's a very nice guy uh you know really clear and engaged and uh you know active person he's he's on he's there with you when he's talking with you um you know he's he has a lot of passion for his work and it's real, really it's a real pleasure to talk with him um so yeah i'll uh, just go ahead and we'll we'll switch on over into that after a couple of brief announcements um So, yes, uh, if you're a regular listener, you've noticed that uh, we've had to go down to, we, I say we, uh, just meaning me and my guests, but I've had to go down, this is a one-person operation, uh, I've had to go down to monthly episodes at the moment, uh, just honestly from being completely overwhelmed. between moving house and uh, putting together a new uh, fellowship application, putting together papers, putting together an important immigration application that will determine whether or not I can stay in the UK and keep my job or not. So all of that has, has consumed my life. Um, I still love doing these and I still want to keep doing them so I will keep at it. But uh, without any further ado, let's just uh, jump right into this conversation with Sam. Hi, Dan.
1: How's it going? Hi, Sam. It's going okay. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. This was surprisingly
0: easy to get working. Nice. We just jumped right in from there talk, talking about the report. And in the report, you've got a page of key findings. I thought maybe we could start just going through these and talking about them a little bit. I was interested in this one. There's one that's a uh, there's a lot of communication, but less dialogue. So the little summary box underneath it talks about how mm-hmm. lots of active climate communicators out there carrying out twelve or more activities per typical year, but that a lot of these were um, a lot of these were one way public presentations, and that's still kind of the norm uh, that there weren't that many folks who were doing a more two way dialogue kind of approach do you Do you want to expand on that a little bit? And, yeah. Of course.
1: Yeah, of course. So I should first off start by saying, you know, it's not just
0: me that's done
1: this report. Um, it's a large team of us at the Climate Communications Project. And in particular, uh, Neil McLaughlin, who's a PhD student and was also a research uh, at Climate Outreach at the time, um, did a large part of putting together the actual report and making it look as pretty as it does. So obviously, th- thanks to to the team. And if I say anything incorrect, it's entirely because of me, and not because of the brilliance of my, um, my my co-workers. But I mean, I think that point that you've picked up is a really interesting one. This idea that there's a lot of communication but less dialogue, and really, I think this feeds into public engagement and science communication more generally. In that, there's a been a great movement towards people recognising the need to talk to non-scientists about their work and to talk to non-scientists in this instance about climate change, but maybe less of a realisation that a more effective way of doing that isn't through a one-way diatribe or if what a lot of people refer to as the deficit model in that the public that we're talking to is unaware of something, so it's our job as scientists to fill that knowledge gap but rather that actually the different publics, plural, that we're speaking to have different needs, different lived experiences, and actually they have a lot of expertise, despite not necessarily being climate change experts, in inverted commas, they have a lot of expertise that we as climate change researchers and climate change communicators can tap into and That tacit knowledge and that tacit expertise only comes about and can be accessed through meaningful dialogue rather than through, um, you know, a one-way diatribe approach.
0: Yeah, more like a a conversation, more like where there's a a real-time, you know, back and forth between the scientist or whoever is doing the presenting and the, the, the folks who are in the room, the folks who... Um, you know, might have specific questions that relate to their values and their interests and what they care about.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's important to note, though, that this is quite a difficult skill. Um, And I think there's, you know, a lot of pressure on researchers to be um, amazing researchers, grant writers, teachers, administrators, and now facilitators and public engagement specialists. And I, I, I think that's really important that that isn't the case. But actually, that if scientists and if climate change, people that work around climate change communications, but who aren't communication specialists, if they're interested in doing this effectively, then, you know, collaborating is a really powerful way of doing that. But I think that one of the main findings of the report and indeed of, of, of other research is that we need to move away from this um, this communication to and instead towards a dialogue with
0: yeah. What What are some good ways to do that? You think? So, in the report, we talk about
1: you know the use of different dynamic elements that we say, and you know visual elements such as photography and film. And, you know, I can talk to my own research that was that formed a part of this report, which was where we were we ran poetry workshops. Which Dan, you very kindly came along to one as well in, in, mm, yeah. in Bristol. And you know. Those workshops were a way of um, facilitating this dialogue. I mean, it's very difficult sometimes for such dialogue to be established because we have a stab- we have what I call hierarchies of intellect become established. So even though these, even though non scientists are actually experts in many different fields of their of their day to day life and actually might be an expert on climate change. Um, effects in their local area if they've lived there for a long period of time it can be disconcerting sometimes for these people to um, have a meaningful conversation with people who you know have 20 letters after their name or who have come from a Mm -hmm. highly respected institute so using visuals using poetry what that helps to do is to break down those levels of hierarchy and instead to give a um a common base through which people can talk. Poetry in particular, um, you know, also really gives permission to the participants, both to the non-scientists, so that they can talk about something that they maybe don't feel qualified to, even though they are, and also crucially, to the scientist, who for years has probably been taught that they're never allowed to show any degree of pathos, which is actually quite a dangerous thing. Mm. And, you know, poetry is not the only way, obviously, it's just an area of research that I do. But, you know, photography, film, storytelling in particular, and just having conversations with people without judgment or without, you know, come along and listen to this person speak and then have questions, but rather let's just have a chat and see where people fit and see what people want to talk about.
0: Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying that those other avenues, you know, poetry and the informal conversations, because they take place outside of the context of these, you know, formal lectures and the, the the usual sort of constraints that come along with that, that maybe people feel a bit more open, a bit more, maybe they feel less guarded, potentially. Um, uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, you
1: know, it's crucial as well that you touched on there, where these take Because Mm -hmm. it's very easy for us as researchers who have been around research institutes and universities for decades to forget that actually these buildings form a huge physical and psychological barrier for many audiences and for Mm -hmm. many publics, especially for those publics who, for a variety of reasons, are traditionally underserved by the scientific community Mm. and who don't feel as though they... Are able to go to these places, even though we know that they're public and that we know that they're open. And so, yeah, actually, we're very used to them
0: just being buildings, like you said. <laughs> absolutely, and it's something yeah.
1: that you know we, we all massively take for granted. Hmm. Um, and I think it's, you know, it can be very off-putting for people coming to these places. It can be aspirational as well. Don't get me wrong, but I think it's in the first instance far more effective to go into different communities where these audiences exist already and to work around, you know, um, meetings or workshops or conversations or teas or coffee mornings that they're already having um, rather than expect people to come to you to this, you know, pristine environment that they, Mm. that they might not normally be associated with.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, And what I I was going to say that one of the things that I really liked about that workshop that you and I both went to uh, near Bristol uh, was the size of it. Well, we just had, I think there were five people, five, six people in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a, a it w- we were able to have direct, you know, discussions with each person there, basically, and we got to know them a little bit. Um, and, you know, I still. Occasionally think about the the you know overworked mom who was just kind of firing on all cylinders because she was trying to keep up with everything, um, and I remember the um, I remember the the person who had really internalized a lot of guilt about climate change and really felt like uh, responsible for it and kind of felt felt the weight of it. So I think about those folks, and that that's such a good thing that I've been able to that that we could have that direct of a conversation with them, um, and I. I I suspect that's probably part of what we should be doing as well. Like like you said, going to the to people where they live, having small group conversations, because you can actually talk there. Well, and that's really great that to hear that as well. Because
1: it makes me feel like what we were doing did work, <laughs> which is good. Because I think, you know, like vitally what's important there is exactly that, Dan. You know, it's it's not just so that we can listen to what these um different non-scientists are saying. It's also so that scientists such as yourself, you know, who are you very conscientious people as well, but can really meet people that are outside of their usual spheres who are affected by climate change. Yes. And you know, I think it's those, as you just said there, it's those personal stories that are far more effective in, in, in my opinion than Large quantitative data, which still has absolutely a place mm-hmm. but which it can become very easy to disassociate oneself from, however, you know when you're sat in a room with somebody and they're physically telling you this is happening to me, this is how I'm dealing with it, then that's not something you know that you can necessarily um not brush aside but it, it really it really sticks in your mind and I think and what came out of all of those workshops really was this was which is really what interesting that you touch on was this sense of guilt um and how debilitating that can be in terms of in terms of meaningfully tackling climate change
0: yeah yeah i i worry about that that guilt and uh, i'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this because i mean well you know yeah it's it's true that like as individuals it's good for us to try to do what we can the the climate you know crisis but i sort of i I sort of worry about individuals kind of piling it all on themselves and Mm. because it's it's a large systematic problem you know it's a problem that that we all were born into and yeah we we need to do something about it but i'm not sure um i'm not sure I, I i worry about folks putting a huge psychological burden on themselves like that and i'm not i don't know if that's the best way it's how some people respond to the problem isn't it
1: yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with you. I don't think that, I think that guilt can be very debilitating. Mm-hmm. I also think that there's certain people who have nothing to feel guilty about, yeah. <laughs> which are yeah. probably the people that are most going to be affected by climate change, right? Yeah. And I think that, and again, the, a lot of these are my personal opinions, but that have come sure, through yeah. that, through conversations, but that really, as individuals, yes, we are responsible, we can we can act in a um, a responsible manner, but Really, the the large scale change that needs to come about through that needs to be done to mitigate against climate change and where necessarily adapt needs to come about through a national level and is the responsibility of government. So, I mean, really, that's not to say that we have no responsibility, but it's to say that the government and national bodies are the ones that can enact the most change. So as individuals, mm-hmm. we should be writing to our MPs Um, You know, to do this. But what was really interesting in in the work that we did was actually in working with some of these audiences, this actually became clear. So we did a workshop with um, Disability Stockport, who are a really fantastic organisation. And when we were chatting to them um, and to the the people who benefited from that organisation and the people who worked that organisation, what became really clear was actually... That they realise that that guilt isn't on them, and it is actually the responsibility of local and national government to mm. be making large scale changes. And what the reason they realised that is because they've gone through a really similar thing with austerity. Mm. So because of austerity, they'd you know an, initially been like, oh, this is all you know. What are we going to do? There's like a lot of individual like guilt that we need to sort this out. Then come into the realisation that hold on. No, the systems broke. This is this the stuff that we can do at an individual level to help, but we should not be feeling guilty as individuals for this. And I think that talking to that audience, that was a really powerful message that came through, and something that should be that others should be aware of as well.
0: It's a a big shift. So they had a prior experience that helped them make that psychological shift. To absolutely, yeah. Ah, yeah, that's really interesting. No, and I, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to, you know, kind of get on the ground in that sense and have that direct interaction with people. Because, um, I mean, r- right here, you're, you're showing that it's definitely worthwhile. You know, you're giving really good concrete examples of why that's a good thing to do. Do we want to go through some more um, key findings? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay, so let's see. Um, there's one about that the aspiration to reach new audiences, this is, again, going back to the, Climate Communication Project key findings that one of the aspirations is to reach new audiences. That's a widespread aspiration, but Mm. connecting with the general public is more common. (laughs) And I I, I was thinking about this, I was thinking about this on the way in because I I can certainly see how, let's say a funding body wants to encourage communication. I can see how it's attractive for them to want to say, let's reach new audiences. And that's certainly a good thing to do, but at the same time um, there's value in keeping the conversation going mm. with your current audience as well, you know i I guess I worry about constantly focusing on that new audience uh, thing uh, that the idea of always pursuing new audiences, although you know uh, may, maybe I 'm being a little unclear, but um, no no, I see what you're saying I mean I yeah. think if i can
1: I think it's slightly nuanced this, mm-hmm. so if I can maybe reinterpret it slightly, I think what we were trying to say here was that there's a lot of work in just kind of what's your target audience, general public. Mm. And what we're not saying necessarily is you all have to go out and find new audiences, but rather it's, there isn't a one size fits all solution for communicating climate change. Right, And right. as we all know, different, different, you know, every single person on the planet is different, right? And it's difficult grouping any Collection of people together, mm-hmm. but you know we could, there's certain things that we can do for for example, we might want to talk to faith communities about climate change, and if we were to do that, they would have the commonality of faith, or we might want to talk to the women 's Institute about climate change, and if we did, then they would have the commonality of the women 's Institute, mm-hmm. or we might want to talk to a youth justice organization in which case they would have the commonality of youth justice. And in each of those messages, we would be able to frame um, what we're taught, frame climate change slightly differently, and the steps that people can take to mitigate against climate change Mm -hmm. slightly differently, to reach into the needs and experiences and behaviors of the commonalities of those groups. Now, obviously, the people in those groups are more than just that group, but working with those groups, like we did with the workshops in the Climate Communications Project is a really powerful first step because you're you're working towards something where there is a commonality. So rather than assuming there is one general public, as is Mm -hmm. often the vernacular, it's rather there's many different publics and In addition to that, so not saying you have to go out and find new audiences, but rather the audiences that you work with, can you maybe tailor them a bit more so that they are specific, so that then it's much easier for those people to work together to enact change because they're working together, you know, with a commonality. Yes. Um, And then in addition to that then, once we look at those, once we break down that audiences, actually what we see is that maybe we are reaching the people who are relatively easy to reach like the low hanging fruit so to speak mm-hmm. and should we be challenging ourselves again with the proviso that research the very busy people they've got a lot going on but should we be challenging ourselves to reach out to generally more diverse and underserved and underrepresented audiences
0: yeah i think that's an important point I, i've had the privilege to do some kind of uh climate outreach events uh here in cambridge and cambridge is a very uh e- easy audience in that regard they're very receptive to you know the, the discussions about climate change and discussions about the science and the solution so uh yeah i have i have occasionally wondered like well this is I, i'm glad that i'm doing i'm glad that i'm i have mm. the opportunity to do what i'm doing here but it's i, I certainly have been aware that like this is a this is a very receptive audience this is uh I certainly could challenge myself a bit more, I think and that would be that would be healthy um, but what what you just said about targeting specific audiences that gets me that gets us to the first two key recommendations in your report. you know the first one is uh, resonate with the audience, position climate change as part of everyday life and some of the language here is really good it's like find out what the audience knows what what are their values, mm-hmm. beliefs, and attitudes, and build or tailor your engagement around this, connect with what matters to them using shared language and trusted credible communicators where possible um uh, yeah so that that's connects directly with what you just said, so that um the idea is to be more uh specific and get to specific audiences which is the is <laughs> the second point um yeah a shift towards more specialist or targeted activities is possibly important um so I guess, um, do you see how, how much of that do you see happening? Is, is there a shift towards are, are people starting to do that this, this sort of thing, or are people starting to take up this uh, recommendation? I guess it's still pretty early days. I mean, the report just came out, and this conversation is kind of ongoing. Mm. Um, and I think I think you know what we're
1: again. I'm really conscious of the fact that you know, being being an active researcher myself and an academic and a, like a lecturer, you know, with bazillion jobs as other people have to do Mm -hmm. it's not about creating more work for people at all Mm. but it's just about getting people maybe to think a little bit smarter about what they're doing so that what they can do can be really impactful so that rather than saying i'm going to go and give a lecture for 200 people which which is cool which there is absolutely a space for you know at a science festival of which Mm -hmm. we know that which are great but that maybe people are already slightly engaged in Instead, could we go and run a workshop for 10 people Mm -hmm. um, around a very specific topic um, with that specific audience, enabling that audience, you know, finding language that relates to their everyday life in terms of, and then making links to human health, to politics, to everyday activities. Do you think
0: maybe, because I was just responding to that as a researcher myself, uh, do you think what, what makes some researchers nervous about that idea is, um so like i I can go give a lecture about general climate, and I', I feel mm. okay about that. But if I got into a room with ten people and let's say they they cared about something very specific having to do mm. with you know water quality changes over the next couple of decades, I might feel very out of my depth. I wonder if that's part of why you know, researchers might feel a little hesitant. to to do that, to jump into a a smaller environment
1: like that. And I I think, honestly, at the wider scale, I think that's why a lot of science communication and public engagement takes the form of public lectures or, Mm. you know, large-scale lecture events, because that's an environment in which academics, in which researchers, in which lecturers feel comfortable, Mm. right? And I guess what I'm not saying is I'm not expecting everybody or wanting everybody to go and necessarily do a workshop for 10 people because it's a very difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as we recommend in the report, you know, to connect with credible communicators. So, you know, if that's something that you were interested in, it's, oh, this is something I would really like to do, but I don't know if I have the skill set or the confidence to do, which, Dan, you personally absolutely do, by the way. Um, but (laughs) But it's maybe about finding somebody you know, in your research institute or a public engagement specialist to help deliver a couple of those sessions with you or to go along to a couple of those sessions mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Or if you're, you know, your own interests outside of work, you know, you might be a scout leader or whatever, like going going to those things, to those environments. Um, and I think it's important that we challenge ourselves as well, right? I mean, I don't, I, again, I don't want to <laughs> create work for people. I don't expect <laughs> people to be all things to all people. But you know, we are scientists because we like to challenge ourselves. And I think that taking that first step is hard, but I think that working with public engagement specialists, working with science communication specialists um, to either come and help deliver the session or to advise on the session um, would be a, a really, really effective way of doing
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good point. And that, um, I was just looking again at the recommendations the the third one i think is would be really interesting to talk about to uh the third recommendation is to be engaging and build a balanced optimism mm. focus on dialogue and co-production because um you know the the optimism the question of how optimistic to be is really interesting um because we can go we can get there's a whole wide spectrum we can yeah. choose from here right <laughs> it's i mean it's it's so interesting and
1: again a lot of what i speak about is my own personal needs my personal experiences but i there is let's not get away from the fact that there is an immediacy here okay yes. there is that that is definitely correct there is it, we need to be acting now we can't we can't we can't put it off any longer but i would make the argument that if we are overly negative then what we do is we build back into. Remember, we were talking earlier about that guilt. It, it mm-hmm. feeds into that debilitating, debilitating guilt. So I, I can only speak for what I find to be effective. But what what I find to be effective in, in 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 workshops is and talks as well is to get people to think about something that they love in their environment that is really you know personal to them. Like I. I Everybody has, in nature, I think, one or two places where you think of, and it's quite a special place. Mm-hmm. Like for me, in I grew up in Harrogate in North Yorkshire. There's a beautiful area there um, called the Pine Woods, which is part of the Valley Gardens. And there's a tiny little copse of trees in there that I'm sure not many people know about, but that I used to really just used to enjoy going and walking around when I was younger. And I'll go back when I go back to Harrogate. I go and visit it sometimes. And like that, to me, is a really intimate and personal connection with nature and connection with our planet. And getting people to think about something like that—that's a really optimistic thing. That's a really, you know, personal thing. And then getting them to think about now what would happen if that goes away, mm-hmm. and what steps can we do to ensure that that doesn't go away. And again, that's this—that's the way that that I work. I think that it is important that to some extent though, that there is, like you say, the whole scale of things, right? This idea of it's, it is about being, having balanced optimism, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, and it's not, it's about working with people and their experiences and their needs as well. Um, and not ramming messages home down their throat, but again, having this open two way
0: dialogue, that's what's really important. Oh, I remember now, um, so what's interesting about your about the example of finding something in nature? Um, it, it doesn't actually have to be nature, does it? You could, you mm-hmm. know, let's let's say you really love a, a coastal city. You know, let's, you know, then and you know, coastal cities in, in over the next several you know decades and centuries are going to be vulnerable to rising sea level, to to exacerbated heat waves, uh, to all sorts of potentially negative effects. So um, you you might have that kind of close. Feeling about a about a city and about a bit a point of civilization, and and often you know the the, 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 I understand you know latching onto that feeling of like well we want to save that or preserve that. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be you know Mm. something natural. That it it could be because our our ability to kind of maintain an organized uh, society in the way that we're doing it now is potentially going to be threatened by climate change in its more in its most extreme potential forms. So that's. That's something we can um, we can um, put in, into the mix as well. Um, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I like this recommendation. Scientists can have opinions. <laughs> Robust scientific evidence, yeah, it needs to be in there, but scientists can have opinions and they can advocate for policies. Um, I remember, um, th- th- just to give you a jumping off point for this potentially, uh, one, one argument that you used to hear, you used to hear the idea that uh when you have your scientist hat on you shouldn't propose any or or back any particular policy but then when you have your um private citizen hat on you can then you know confidently back a particular policy do do you think that that distinction is still useful or are we allowed as scientists you know even when we have our scientist hat on to to say i think this is maybe the way we should go uh Okay. This is what. What a can of worms you're asking me to with <laughs> Okay. Okay.
1: Again, I can speak personally how I feel sure. about this. Yeah. I yeah. Think that, I think that it extends beyond that, right? I think that for so long scientists have been told that you have to present the cold hard facts, and that's how it is. And I just, I just disagree hmm. with that fundamentally. Now, I think when you're doing science, you know, when you when you're, when you're passing data, when you're uh, running computer programs, when you're f- carrying out quantitative analysis, when you're carrying out qualitative analysis, that's when you need to be objective, right? That's when you have your scientists head on. Yes. But when yes. you're interpreting those results and discussing those results and advocating for policy for those results, I don't see how you can be objective <laughs> that way. I think, <laughs> I think that you need to bring in your own experiences. You need to think about how this is going to affect people that 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 you know and that you've lived with yes so i think that scientists need to show more pathos and i think that there's a fundamental failing in the system when we're told not to do that Mm. great Uh, so i mean i guess to to wrap up what i'd say is that you know the, the the reports available online and the climate communications projects now come to an end um, like funded through NERC, and there's a there's a summation of that report as well, and it's really fun. It'd be great for people to read that, get back to us, and let us know what they think. Um, and we're learning as well, right? So it'd be really fantastic
0: to hear what everyone thinks about it. Definitely, yeah. I'll link to that when I when I put it up uh, cool. on the on the Twitter page for this. Okay, well, thanks very much for your time, no, thanks. Sam. I'll let you get going. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks, this has been Dan. a really, really
1: good conversation. Great. And I the, look forward to... Next time I'm, I'm down, I'll give you a shout because it'd be great to do a long format as well.
0: Yeah, that would be awesome. Sounds really good. Thanks,
1: Dan. Okay. Stay Take care. Bye now. Bye.
0: Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Dr. Sam Ellingworth, Senior Lecturer in Science Communication up at Manchester Metropolitan University. At Sam Ellingworth, that's his Twitter. You can find him there. Uh, he has a book coming out from Manchester University Press called... Uh, A Sonnet to Science, which is about uh, scientists and their poetry. I'm just reading the front cover. (laughs) That's all I know about it. Uh, I just saw it from a tweet. That's all. And he also has a new podcast with a few other folks coming up. Um, It's called uh, P.E. Shorts, Public Engagement Shorts, I believe. Uh, They've just produced a pilot for that that uh, came out. Um, just today, the twelfth of, of April, when I'm recording this, so give that a give that a look. On uh, you can find it from Sam's t- Twitter. So yes, like I said uh, in the beginning, I, I am having to go monthly at the moment. Uh, th- sorry about that. Thanks for understanding uh, the, the delay. This is a one-person operation. It's just me, my microphones, and uh, I go around and record you know with conversations with uh, whoever I can get a hold of but at the moment my uh, my life has gotten too chaotic between moving fellowship applications papers immigration applications just uh, my it's overwhelming <laughs> but I still want to do these and I like doing these thanks for uh, hanging in and uh, I will keep them coming as, as best that I can so uh, take care hope to talk to you soon goodbye